On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to episode number four of The Music Plays the Band. I'm your host, Rob Koritz of the Dark Star Orchestra. I'm really glad you're joining me today and I hope you are safe and well. Well, the uh, weather is keeping us off the road until it warms up and we can start doing the drive-in shows again, which were an absolute blast. And by all accounts, it's probably going to be the new normal for a while. So we're going to have to wait till it warms up to get back out there. But uh, it's it's obviously tough not being able to work. But the silver lining is all the extra time I'm getting at home with the family. And we've never spent this much time at home in 20 plus years I've been in DSO. So we're adjusting and learning how to take advantage of it. Now, one of the positives for me has been the chance to start this podcast. You know, it's been a great opportunity to try something new, stay connected with all of you, and hopefully provide you all with some information and entertainment. For the feature interview today, I am happy to bring along drummer Vinny Amico from Mo. Vinny has been a member of Mo since 1996 and has played his fair share of Grateful Dead music over the years as well. This is the first drummer I've featured and I'm very excited for some drum talk. Also on the show today is Mark Munzer from the band Playing Dead to share a little bit about the Grateful Dead scene around the Boston area. Before we get to our first segment, I would like to take a moment and ask you to check out our subscriber site at www patreon.com forward slash the music plays and consider a monthly subscription for access to bonus content including unedited interviews video features a look behind the scenes links to related topics some cool swag and other ways to further engage with me and support the podcast www.patreon.com forward slash the music plays our first segment is the Black Music Moment, brought to you by The Clean Store, brandingandapparel.com for all your branding and apparel needs. Technology-driven solutions and concierge service for managing programs of all sizes. The Black Music Moment is our attempt at chronicling the profound influence of black music and musicians on the Grateful Dead. This week we take a moment to honor legendary bluesman Howlin' Wolf. Born Chester Barnett in Mississippi in 1910, Howlin' Wolf's recording career began at the legendary Sun Records in Memphis. In the early 50s, he moved to Chicago and began recording for Chess Records, and it was here that his career really took off. Uh, Many of the tunes he popularized were written by Willie Dixon, who also wrote a lot for Muddy Waters. And uh, quite a few made it into the Grateful Dead's repertoire, including Smokestack Lightning, Spoonful, Wing Dang Doodle, and the one you're going to hear right now, Little Red Rooster. He passed away in 1976, but lives on as one of the most influential bluesmen of all time and was part of the first class of inductees into the Blues Hall of Fame, as well as being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1991. So here is the legendary Howlin' Wolf and Little Red Rooster. Red 
you know, Howlin' Wolf is such a giant in the blues and really all of American music that we're going to have to come back in future episodes and, and we'll dig into them a little bit more and listen to some of uh, the other tracks that the uh, Grateful Dead uh, performed. Now it's time for the Sarno Music Solutions Breakdown with Brad Sarno. Brought to you by Sarno Music Solutions, producing the finest musical instrument audio gear, designed and hand-built in St. Louis, Missouri since 2003, and Blue Jade Audio, St. Louis's primary audio mastering service since 1999. Brad is a fantastic guitarist in his own right, and this week he's going to share his knowledge of something that I know is near and dear to him, and that's the unmistakable guitar tone of Jerry Garcia. I'm back here today with my friend Brad Sarno. Always a pleasure to have you. How are you today? Doing well, Rob. Thanks. I uh, Today I'm going to give you a tough one because I know that you could go for hours on this. I've heard you go for hours on it. <laughs> but uh, we're going to talk about some guitar tones and specifically Jerry's, um, how it changed over the years. You know, it definitely evolved. But uh, can you give us your brief description of the evolution of that tone and how we got it? Wow. Okay. Yeah, good luck. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> well, let's see. Um, if we go back to the 60s, I, I guess you could kind of say he had a, a kind of a thicker Gibson tone, um, oftentimes a, a single coil, but sometimes a humbucker and uh, big, loud Fender twin amps. And um, it was just a meaty, rich tone. Um, by the by about 70, he started to gravitate towards Stratocaster tones, uh, single coil more country, clear, sparkly, articulate tones. And uh, that became his sound, still with the Fender amps, the loud Fender amps. Um, but the fidelity kept going up, and they started using Macintosh for louder, cleaner power. He started playing more uh, custom-built, uh, high-grade, bright, clear guitars uh, by Doug Irwin. Um, and in the mid later seventies, he dabbled with the Travis Beans, which are also very bright, clear. Oh yes, they almost, are almost pedal steely sounding guitars. Yeah. And um, and then a couple of years by the end of the seventies, he had these bright uh, Irwin sounding guitars with uh, pickups that he would set to single coil. So it was it really became a a very high fidelity Fendery kind of approach. Uh, lots of bell tone clarity and uh, audiophile just pristine presence but being jerry he would also just blast the hell out of it and uh play it the whole rig like a guitar amp and still could get dirty with it but it had a very distinctly sparkly tone and i would say by 79 ish 78 or 79 his tone was pretty much uh, etched in stone he, he changed some things but that was it for for the duration for the I, most part i guess the next big thing would have been uh when he changed and brought in some MIDI in the 90s, would have been really the next big stepping stone in his tone. Right, right. Um, you mentioned the amp, and you mentioned the guitar, and you mentioned the speakers. But what about effects? And I know that there had to be some in there. I know you design effect pedals, and some of them are based on some of Jerry's stuff, and some aren't. But it seems like uh, there probably would have been a lot of effect pedals involved as well. Yes? No? You know, Jerry was a minimalist with pedals. Um, in the early 70s, he used a wah-wah. Um, he, then he uh, discovered the auto wah in about 76, 77, I guess, the Mutron. And that then he wrote a bunch of tunes that are just distinctively Mutron tunes. 
And then he added distortion and then he added a phase shifter and then he added some echo, um, added an octaver. And so it's, which is still a pretty basic palette of pedals. And, uh, he would kick them on, you know, in the appropriate times. Um, but, uh, for the most part, the Jerry sound was not a pedal based thing. It really was a simple guitar to preamp to amp to speaker thing. That's that's really interesting because, as you know, and we're going to talk about it in another episode. There's this whole subculture of hobbyists out there who are, you know, home uh, home guitar players, if you will. They're striving for the Jerry tone and getting the right axes and the amps and all that. And from what I read, it seems like pedals are a really big deal to them. And maybe sometimes they're a little off the mark with that. Then, yes. Well, I don't know about that. Pedals are fun, and there are some tunes that absolutely call for a certain pedal effect. And so uh, you mentioned the Mutron before. Name a song that that really would have been there in. Can well, you? estimated profit, um, fire on the mountain. Um, those really stand out as uh, just distinctively Mutroni. Got to have it to get that shake, sound. Shake down street. Uh, it's just a uh, that bwomp Ottawa. Right on. And it was just. The perfect Jerry effect. It just fit his style perfectly. And, of course, the fingers. Jerry was, it's about the fingers. What a master. Yes. Right on, man. Well, I've I, I got to tell you, I really appreciate you giving me the short version because I, I know how hard that was for you. <laughs> <laughs> so little, so little time. It's so much to talk about. <laughs> but right. in, in all seriousness, thank you for uh, giving some people a little more clarity on that. Maybe we'll get back into that in a little more in-depth at another time. But I really enjoy having you on here every week with me, and I'm looking forward to some more in future episodes. So uh, as always, my friend, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. All right, take care. Today's edition of There is a Grateful Dead cover band in every town is brought to you by the Authenticity Academy, offering you online courses and private coaching. If you're feeling stuck or confused about the direction your life is going in, or you've lost touch with your authentic self, the Authenticity Academy is here to help. www.authenticity-academy.com My guest today is Mark Munzer, who is the keyboard player in the band Playing Dead, who are based in the Boston, Massachusetts area. Uh, I've known about this band for a long time, and their rhythm guitarist, Jim Harris, even spent some time on the road with DSO uh, back in the summer of 2000. So uh, let's get right to it. Here is Mark Munzer. All right. Hey, Mark. How are you doing today? I'm good, Rob. How are you? I am great. I really want to thank you for taking the time to uh, to join me here and uh, tell me a little bit about Playing Dead and the scene around Boston. So the My name pleasure. of the band... The name of the band is Playing Dead. Um, how long have you guys been together? When did you form? Uh, well, Playing Dead used to be a band called Electric Hummus way back when. Um, and then they eventually changed their name to Playing Dead. And I joined them about uh, 12 years ago. All right. So, And and that Electric Hummus, that was the band that, that Jimmy's in, uh, your rhythm guitar player, who spent a bit of time in the summer of 2000 with me. That's right. Yeah, Jim Harris has been there for uh, since the beginning, and he's still playing with us and playing dead. How how often, uh, pre-pandemic anyway, how often would you all be playing? Well, we all stay local to the Boston area, or New England area, I should say. Um, and uh, we all have day jobs and wives and kids. So um, we typically play about two or three times a month, you know, on the weekends, um, which is a great way to, uh, you know, continue to keep the 
the music vibes going um, without it having to be a, a full-time thing. Have you been able to play at all during the pandemic? We have. So there, we've been fortunate enough to have a few outdoor venues in the New England area that still have live music in a, in a safe way with social distancing. And so we've done, I think we did uh, five shows over the summer, uh, which was pretty good considering. Yeah, I mean, it's now, now the weather's getting colder and probably like us, you're probably pretty much done for the winter, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll kick things back up next spring and, um, you know, hopefully there'll be a uh, a uh, vaccine and we can start doing things back to normal but if not you know we'll we'll continue to find the outdoor places to play until until we can move indoors a very familiar story to me as well um pre-pandemic again you guys you weren't limited to just boston you put all over the massachusetts area didn't you oh yeah i mean we played also in you know in rhode island and um in uh new hampshire and a little bit in uh, the different different New England places, but mostly um, mostly be sort of between Boston and Providence was our uh, and Worcester maybe were our, kind of our three uh, three main destinations. Pretty much all places where you could finish the gig and still drive home. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> Keep the expenses down. You personally and as a band, do you all take a specific approach to interpreting the music? You know, I'm, and the reason I ask is. There's bands out there like us who look at it from a purist's uh, standpoint. There's bands out there who are playing it in instrumental jazz ways. Do you guys have a specific approach or do you just go out there and go for it? We definitely take a little bit more of a purist approach. Um, but I have to say, as, um, as a keyboard player, I feel like I have a lot more flexibility than Jim and Vic do sort of playing the Bobby and Jerry roles. Um, you know, with the keyboards, you know, Grateful Dead had, you know, TC and Pigpen and Keith and Brent and Vince and Bruce Hornsby for a while. So, you know, it isn't like I have to play a certain role. Um, so I take a lot more liberties and there's certainly there's a lot of stuff that I do that sort of my own influence. Um, but it's a little bit easier to get away with that on the keyboards, um, even in a sort of purist type of band than it would be, you know, for, for the Jerry or Bobby uh, role. I got to ask you this. I'm you, and I hear what you're saying about you having all that freedom, you know, with all the different players, the keyboard players. Is there one that you just take the most from? Is there, do you, I don't want to say do you have a favorite, but there, is there one that inspires you more than the others? Yeah, well, so my first Dead show was, was in uh, May of 1980. And so I grew up seeing pretty much mostly the Brenna era. Um, you know, I saw I watched a little bit of the, the Hornsby Vince era, but but kind of lost interest as, uh, as Jerry started deteriorating, uh, in, in the kind of early nineties. Um, so, so yeah, Brent is really the one that kind of, I grew up on. Um, and so, and I just also love his passion and, and kind of what he put into, into his approach to playing. So I think I probably channel him the most. Um, although when I play piano, I usually play a little bit more in the Keith style. Um, I loved Brent's organ playing, but I wasn't always a fan of, of some of his late 80s piano sounds. So I tend to play a little bit more sort of a traditional acoustic piano when I, when, I do, when I do play piano. So you guys have been out there doing it a long time. Tell me a little bit, if you can, about the, the community in your area. You know, I know you guys travel a little bit around, but I'm sure there are people that you see at every show. Um, tell me a little about, a bit about the blah, blah, blah. Excuse me. Tell me a little bit about the Boston Grateful Dead scene. We have a really great music scene up here in Boston. Um, some of that is just the quality of musicians from schools like Berkeley and other places, uh, you know, in the New England area. 
uh, that tend to breed, you know, really good quality musicians. Um, we have quite a few bands that all play, you know, different, like you said, different styles of, of Grateful Dead tributes. Um, and we have a really, really encouraging audience that, um, you know, just loves to be able to come out every weekend and be able to see some form of, whether it's Grateful Dead or other, you know, original improvisational music. Uh, and they're incredibly supportive. Um, I know they all go to your shows when you come to town as well. So they, they love DSO, um, but, uh, but they love the ability to, you know, really get their live music fix every week by coming to, uh, to see us and, and other local dead bands. What is it about this music that's creating this, do you think? I mean, to me, the Grateful Dead were just so unique in so many different ways. You know, they were one of the first bands to take the approach of um, playing different songs at every show and having one song be seven minutes one night and 12 minutes another night. Um, and, and so it enabled fans to want to go see show after show after show because they weren't going to see the same thing. You take that and you combine it with, you know, great original songs, incredible lyrics by Robert Hunter that still resonate with, with everybody. Um, and, uh, and then you mix all the styles that they played from blues to folk to country to rock to jazz to funk. And it's, it's just something that's unique and really nobody's been able to duplicate it there. Plenty of jam bands that you know had followed the, uh, you know the formula of playing different different songs at every show and all that. But uh, but there's just something very unique about about the Dead and the chemistry of the members of the Dead that to me make this music timeless. Isn't that a beautiful thing, man? It, it is. is so beautiful. Well, hey, man, I, I I really appreciate you taking time. For those of you nobody knows this, but it's Sunday morning, and uh, the fact that you're taking time out of your Sunday morning to do this with me. I really appreciate it. I uh, hope we get back up there. You know, it's always nice to see you when we come up and play in the Boston area. And we get to have dinner together occasionally. Hopefully, we will. Uh, hopefully, we'll get back to those days soon, pal. I agree. My pleasure, Rob, and uh, great to talk to you. All right, thank you. That's Mark Munzer from Playing Dead. If you like what you are hearing today, please head over to our subscriber site at www.patreon.com forward slash the music plays and consider a monthly subscription for access to bonus content, a look behind the scenes, links to related topics, and a bunch of other different ways to uh, further engage with me and support the podcast. We have uh, a few different uh, levels to choose from and, and some really good things to offer, so please check it out www.patreon.com forward slash the music plays i am so excited for today's interview because it's the uh, first time i have featured a drummer and that drummer is Vinny amico from mo i had a lot of fun with this one and it was great to kind of geek out a little bit and uh talk drums for a while uh, so uh here you go i hope you enjoy it all right hey Vinny, thank you so much for joining me this morning how's it going rob it, it you know it's it's going okay we're hanging in there right um you're in new york correct i am and what are you doing to keep yourself busy during all this uh well i have a few lessons i give um i have done some side work because because of where i am in upstate new york um and through the summer where it kind of mellowed out a lot over here uh, i was working in vermont a lot which they're you know they were really diligent about um uh, you know, yeah, doing stuff safely. So, um, you know, Zach Nugent, right? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So Zach, you know, and I were doing a bunch of gigs up, up, uh, 
up near Burlington and stuff. So they are totally vigilant up there. We did one gig at the Burlington Fairgrounds, or maybe two, oh, yeah. two yeah. gigs, maybe I don't yeah. remember. But and I mean, you couldn't walk into the hotel right without basically taking a test at the door, and that's right. why they have zero cases. Right, you know? right. So you know, we did. I did that, and between that and the lessons, and I practice more than I ever have before, which I never have been a practicer and I never, I don't really, it's kind of boring to play drums by yourself, but you know, but I'm my, my fundamentals were never very good. So I'm getting much better fundamentally as a drummer and certain things that I always could do, but couldn't do well. They're starting to fall into place because it's like, Oh, right. If I had just you know, done the rudiments instead of like <laughs> bastardizing everything. Right. Now I could just do it because, oh, right, that's how your hands are supposed to go if you practice. I need to take so. a page out of your book because I'm the same way. I, I'm not, I'm not big on playing by myself. I don't get right. a whole lot of joy out of it, and I'm not practicing nearly as enough as I enough as I should. You so know, not now. Granted, I am not. You know pulling off any of the crap like the Instagram guys or any of that. I get my pad out. Or I'll pad up my kit because I don't want it to be loud. And I just work the rudiments around the kit. Yeah. I work the rudiment sheet. I work rudiments and that's it. Because it's like, oh, this is the stuff that, you, you know. How long? I know why people can do that, you know. How long can you last when you're practicing by yourself? For me, it's maybe 15, 20. If I'm on a good day, 30 minutes. Then I'm just Yeah, I'm over. about 20 minutes yeah. as about my tolerance. And now, yesterday I went about 40 and I didn't even know it because I was getting into some cool stuff. And that's a good sign. And I'm like, huh. I just did 40 minutes of, you know, of stuff. So, so when, so now you're practicing now, which is great. When did you start playing? Uh, I was 10, so I'm 51. So I've been did, playing for 41 years, almost my whole life. So this is spooky. I'm 52 and I started when I was eight. So we're, yeah. now did you start yeah. with lessons or did you just start banging on stuff? No, I started with lessons in grade school, you know, snare drum and rudiments and that. And I played two years uh, and I was in band and stuff, which I didn't really love. And I skipped a couple of concerts to play baseball. <sighs> I, was, I was a, you know, good base. I was, I was a good pitcher. So, um, and then I got, kicked out of band or I got screamed at by my band guy when I, you know, uh, skipped the concert. So I kind of, you know, I didn't have great, um, feelings about all that. And then it was going to, they stopped giving you school lessons. Like in seventh grade, my mom wasn't going to pay for it anymore. Right. So that's when I started, but I had a kit and I was playing all the time, you know, cause I enjoyed it. So that's when I went to self learning and, you know, you know, if you, if you have good time, and you can groove. Um, you start playing in bands, and you start actually getting calls, and you st- because you actually can play the drums. Like right. there's tons of guys that can, or they used to be anyway. That there was tons of kids that oh I'm a drummer and ah, I do you know and they're in band and stuff and they go to play with a band and they suck. They can't yep. keep a beat, you know. So the guy that can actually keep a beat and make it easy for the rest of the band always gets the work. Thanks. And that was me. Remember those words, folks. That's very important. Um, you're the first drummer I've had on as a feature interview, so it's great oh. to get to geek out a little bit on it. You started right. about the same time I did with the rudiment book. Do you remember what your first book was? Um, I had the uh, the Ludwig. It was a, like a greenish, lightish green. I think I still have it. I could look it up. Uh, it's like uh, something for snare drum. Gotcha. Mine was so. uh, the Haskell-Haar snare drum method. That might be it. Wait, I got, I got. I'm gonna go downstairs into my drum room. And Books one and two, they're right on the shelf over there. I still have them. Yeah, I haven't looked at them, but I do go like 
I get into stick control yeah. all the time. I still go back and do work those pages because you can never work stick control enough, honestly. I took out those books one time a couple months ago just to see what I was doing in 1978 and, uh, and play them again like when I was a little kid. It was a lot of fun. I got drum student, snare, and bass drum. Uh, musical studies for intermediate, so that must have been my sixth grade. Breeze Easy Method for Drums. I think that was I got uh, that Breeze one. Easy 1 and 2. I think those were my first two. Oh, and then the, the Ludwig Collection of Drum Solos. So those were like my first four or five books. I have most of those on the shelf over there. I'm looking at them right now. <laughs> um, do you remember when... So you started playing drums at 10. Do you yeah. remember when you first heard The Grateful Dead? Um, I probably had to be like when I was 12 or 13. Um, you know, I, I had a paper route and I would have uh my walkman <laughs> my sony walkman in and sometimes i would listen to, to the music uh to the radio instead of tapes oh, you had the fancy one that had the radio and the cassette player yeah wow. so well it was an off-brand though <laughs> but um but i put it on and i always thought that the grateful dead was like a heavy metal band because of the name right and then you know like um uh uh, as Casey Jones comes on, or a friend of the devil, and I'm like, this is the Grateful Dead, you know. This it isn't heavy metal at all. This isn't heavy metal at all. And then, where I grew up uh, in this Yuna, in the Capital District, where you have 10 million concert venues within a couple hours, and the Grateful Dead used to tour this area three times a year, so you could catch no more than 15 dead shows without ever driving more than an hour and a half right so by the time i was 14 15 either i was going or my friends were already going to see the dead because i live near spack and the dead played there every year since 1980 right so my first show was 1985 which was i was 15 um but had already been listening at that point what and was then, what was it that grabbed you man what, what drew you into it well, it was my friends, and they were already going. They were already into it. So I went to that first show, and I was like, that was amazing. And then the next night was uh, <laughs> Hershey Park, which I was about two inches from going to. I didn't end up going. But after that, we all started really getting into it at 15. And then I joined a band of my friends, and that's the music they were playing. You know, so... I started learning the catalog and jumping into, you know, this is 1985. Right. So think of the all the bootleg tapes that I was getting and listening to. The shit was just amazing. <laughs> like, right. It's like a big, huge band playing freaking freeform jazz all the time, you know, except for around that songbook. So it was like, you know, most of the shit was just amazing. So when, when you guys started playing it, were you trying to jam like that as well? Or were you just kind of playing the songs at first? No, we always went right to jamming, you know. And we were also we were into the scene, so we were taking drugs and shit. So we'd all, pot, you know, take acid and then go down in the basement and play for six hours. That's so awesome. Around those songs, so we started to like, oh, get it. Like minds open, kind of leave the song behind. Although you weren't, you were actually getting deeper into the song with the help of you know some of that psychedelics and it. You know, it it transformed my playing at the time, 
And I got into, you know, when I went to college, I joined the Dead Band, and we were one of the premier bands in Western New York for years. What was it and called? We play, uh, Sonic Garden. And we played, you know, we studied the music, and we played the music. I'll tell you what, doing what you were doing and, and really starting to jam out on it and, and take it out from the song form in, in, in high school or in, in your late teens or whatever, Yeah, that's uh, – that's heady stuff, man. There's not a lot of cats that could really do that, and you know, and right. that's a huge learning process pulling it off yeah. at that age. And that was that's, I mean, again, what like informed my playing, and you know, opened me up. Now, granted, I came, my father was a jazz musician. I had been around bebop, you know, hard bop since I was little. What instrument so, did he play? Uh, trumpet and flugelhorn. So I had been aware of, you know, in improvised music and that groove and that that feel and the openness and but even you know in that genre there was still form but everything opens up so like i was able to catch the connection with the grateful dead and bebop jazz really early on in how there's a song structure Yet, when you get to the solo or when you get to certain parts, that's when it opens up. And to me, it was very sim- like it was very similar to me. It wasn't like, oh, this is this and this is that. It's all like, oh, this is this is it, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, right? So, like, I I was exposed early on, and it just tied in with with that. Because of that, since since you already have kind of that jazz background a little bit and the bebop thing. Are you at that point? Are you more attracted to Billy's drumming than Mickey's because it's a little more jazzier of a style? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, I was I, I was always the Bill guy, kind of anyway, because he was more of the time guy, and yeah. so you know, I was a time guy. You know, so and but even early on, so I, by the time I'm a senior in high school, I'm in a dead band with a second drummer who was about 15 years older. He was an older dude. Uh, you know, we're we're doing parties and popping acid and playing and playing for six hours, <laughs> you right, know, right. and like and playing well for the most part. I mean, if I l- listen back, I'd probably be like, ooh, but I'd also be like, wow, there was some cool shit in there, you know. That's a big thing too, because there's been times, you know, not just my playing, but I'll go to a dead show, yeah. and for whatever mind altering reason, that was the greatest show ever, yeah. And then you go back and listen to it. And you're just like, holy shit, that was yeah. not very good. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. And I'm, I'm being nice when I say it that way. Yeah, you know, yeah. Because there's times when I've done it and gone back, holy shit, I, I, I enjoyed this? This sucks. Yeah, yeah. This is horrible, yeah. Um, I want to get a little drum geeky about it. Yeah. Um, playing style, you know, you said you're in those formative years, you know, that really formed, changed your playing style or your approach. Yeah. Can you be specific? Um, well, I mean, like – you're being your age, right? Same, same age. Right. Most of the drumming I learned because I would sit there with records. I wouldn't, I wouldn't play the records. I'd air drum the records and memorize everything and then go play it later to my drum set, which probably also helped my brain to get through songs and memorize and all that stuff. Right. Um, but it was, you know, it was Led Zeppelin. It was Van Halen. It was Rush. All so heavy stuff. That, yeah, and that stuff is nothing like the dead. So I come into that music with this sort of style of playing the drums, and then you're like, oh, this isn't like that at all. You know, this is completely different. Little like Led Zeppelin, you could you could transform the Bonham stuff into the Grateful Dead a lot easier than say Neil Peart. 
for or, sure. Or, you know, Alex Van Halen or a lot of these guys. But I mean, we grew up in classic rock times. So, you know, those weren't the only things. Those were like the eighth and ninth grade. But then you get into Yes, which, you know, Bruford's a freaking jazz drummer. Right. You get into Genesis, which when you got the double drums and Chester Thompson, who was a freaking monster, you know, you were able to. You know, and listening to some of the fusion stuff that you get into, the John Luke Pontis and the Jeff Beck stuff, that like you're you're exposed to a lot of good sort of open sort of music. So a lot of that is able to transfer to the dead stuff, right? You know, um, you know, mu- song wise, those songs are so strong that that's kind of where you. Um, kind of connect to is like, Oh, these songs are great, you know? And then you're able to put all that influence out in those songs. For, are there, does any, that make sense to you? It, it, me, me as a drummer, it completely makes sense. Yeah. Hopefully to all you non drummers out there, it also makes sense. Right. Um, are there, you know, you mentioned the songs, are there particular songs or just eras even that, that you really got off on more than others? Um, I know you're well, going to, I know what, are you going to say the one drummer stuff? no, Song wise, there's a lot of them. There's too many. Um, I actually love the '80s Dead. Me too. I am a big <laughs> fan of the '80s Dead, and you know, I saw my most the most shows for me. I saw about f- probably forty five or fifty shows between eighty five and ninety three. Yeah. Um, most of them were eighty seven and ninety one, which I probably saw like thirty five of them. That, that was and the that was my career as well, yeah, and that was the best of the Grateful Dead, even to the those guys. You know, yeah, that was the best years of the Dead. Not the greatest shows ever. Consistently, night to night to night to night was the best. Right. So, and that's that's the stuff I really love and am connected to. You know, it's interesting that you say that because I find you know with everybody in my band, it seems like. And I'm 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 with you. You know, the '80s is really what hooked me in when I first saw him and yeah. Mickey playing these giant tribal fills across the bar line that I just thought oh, was yeah. the coolest stuff ever. But everybody in my band, it seems, their favorite era is when they started seeing the dead, right? You know, so the older guys, it's you know '72. Oh, really? Some of the guys, well, you know, yeah. Jeff and. And, and Skip and those guys, you know, are over 60 years old now. Right. Um, you know, and they're seeing them in 71 and 72, you know, at Fillmore East and stuff like right. that. And right. That's their favorite stuff. You know, I started seeing them in the 80s. Yeah. That's my favorite. Lisa started right. seeing them in the late 70s. That's her favorite. Also, because right. Donna was there. But right. I find that when I talk to people, a lot of times their their favorite is where they started. Sure. You sure. know, and I've learned to enjoy all of it, but that's really what got me off at right. the beginning. Now, that being said, the first, like, live thing that really blew my mind that I studied and studied was uh, one from the vault, uh, the Great American Music Hall 75. And they're playing so much difficult stuff on that album, oh too. Oh, my God. It's so good. That's, it's like a jazz album almost, yeah, you know? it is. It's like, so. And, and that's right when Mickey's just coming back. Right. You know, right. so he hasn't even been there for a while, and it just it's on fire right from the beginning. Oh, my God, it's killer, and the songs are just freaking crazy. All that crazy cowbell and King Solomon's Marbles. Oh, I know. It's yeah. so great. And, 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 yeah, that's that's one, that's actually one of the hardest ones for us to play. And, yeah. And me personally, that's definitely yeah. the hardest song to play just because all the cowbell. Right. Yeah, I've been playing it with uh, Marcus Rizak and the Shred is Dead stuff. No cowbell because of one drummer, drummer stuff, right. but I'm just – it's it's – Pretty interesting to improvise over seven too, like with as being one drummer, and yeah. and he shreds a little more, so we it kind of takes more of a 
you know, it's a different, it's a different animal. That's just, it, it's song and form only almost, you know, because Tell- it gets a little different. So Tell me a little bit about that project you just mentioned, because I know you're about to maybe possibly go do some gigs. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's, you know, I'm a, I've always been a purist dead guy. So when I go to see a band that's playing that music or, you know, it, at this point, even dead and company, <laughs> yeah. it's like, if it doesn't sound like Jerry dead, I'm always like, you know, or like what I, not, Ugh, but I'm never like as super into it. Um, but with this, it's like, if you take it for what it is and it's like taking those songs and then kind of playing a more like a, sh- a shreddy band, it's kind of fun. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of improv going on because, you know, it's it's in form and melody, of course. Right. But you really can take – and Marcus is a really good guitar player, and he shreds some of that shit. So once he starts putting some of the runs that he puts in, you're just like, holy shit, and you go with it, you know? And it's it's uh, it's a lot of fun. Is, is it a four-piece? Uh, yeah, usually it's four, four-piece. And, and, and so it's only one guitar, and then the other four – the fourth player is a keyboard? So that's leaving yep. everybody, especially the guitar players, so much more space to, sh- yeah. to shred like that. Right, right. And then the bass player gets to kind of, you know, fill in spaces. But he hasn't gotten a fill type of guy. You know, he's got usually a groove type of bass No, I saw a player. video, man. I can't remember what song it was. You guys were playing outside. I just watched it. Oh, yeah, I was in Vermont. Yeah. He, he's a funkmeister, man. Yeah. Oh, that was uh, Chris uh, DeAngelis from uh, Kung Fu. So, Got, so that's my, a different bass player than you're using on this on the next stuff. Yeah, gotcha. I was bringing my guy from uh, from Rochester, Rolf, who played in uh, Sonic Garden with me. He was he's a great bass player. So and he's he actually took the time to learn <laughs> a bunch of the songs. He's playing in a band out in Buffalo area called Wild Nights. Um, that they're you know they're like forty year old dead band. Yeah, yeah they they play the shit better than most. What are they called? So, the Wild Nights. I'm gonna have to get some info and maybe talk to them yeah. for my cover band section. Yeah. So, uh, well, so we're putting we've we've gotten back together. To, we just did a gig in when was it August September? Um, it was half of the Sonic Garden guys and half the Wild Nights guys who were kind of together at the same time in Buffalo. So we kind of were melding bands together. Um, so we played and we hadn't played together in 25 years. And we did a gig, and it is the best. It was the best Grateful Dead band I had played in in years. It was freaking killer because they got we like when you know the songs for forty years, and you've been playing them for forty years, right? And you know them the way the Dead plays. You like the the music just you plays you. You know you're just there, (laughs) you know. And it's it's it. I don't know how else to explain it. You get on stage, and within a song, it's like. Oh my God, I'm in the Grateful Dead right now. And you're just, you know. That is why this podcast is called The Music Plays the Band. Yeah. (laughs) It's like you stop, you're not playing, you're not playing the music. It's playing you for sure. And that's my all time favorite Grateful Dead lyric. Yeah. And probably, you know, when I get interviewed and people say, what's your favorite song to play and all that, which is a horrible question. Yeah. If if I have to answer it, my answer is usually the music never stopped. Yeah. Um, yep. partially because of those lyrics, partially because it's got a great groove, but then it switches oh, to a six, eight thing. Yeah. You know, it, it really covers everything yeah. about the Grateful Dead in one song. 
And that's the beauty. I mean, with you playing in your band and how good you guys do it, every night must be totally enjoyable. Like you just get on stage and then you're not playing anymore. You're just at a Grateful Dead show like Ruben, except for the fact is you're making the music. Yeah. You know? you know, and you it, get to put your touches on it. So it's not necessarily sounding exactly like them. You know, you, there's things you would do differently than Mickey or Billy, you know, a hundred percent. You know, I mean, there's some so. things that I would totally do differently that I can't. I, right. I'm a big, me personally, my playing style prior to this, I'm a big fan of splash cymbals. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I grew up on Stuart Copeland and then, yeah. uh, and I really got into Carter Beaufort when Dave Matthews came. I can't, yeah. I can't really put splash cymbals on my kit. Yeah, right. You know, they right. just they don't fit. Um, yeah. so Mo, Mo started in eighty nine and you came along in ninety six, is that right? Correct. Yep. When you came in, did did you already know those guys? Yeah. Yeah. I had uh I was working in Sonic Garden, but I had it was a couple bands I was playing in, in Buffalo at the time, um, that were like a house band at Broadway Joe's. So all those guys used to come there. So they all we all knew each other from school and, and from the scene. Were they all or any of them any Dead fans already? Were they were they into the dead as well? Al Al had seen you know a lot of uh, shows at that point, so um, he was he was into the dead and influenced by the dead. The rest of the guys weren't very into it. And Jim, who was the second drummer, who uh, he and I were friends before there was ever a mo or anything. He he uh, he came to college. His my roommate in college was his neighbor. So when he came up to visit UB, he came and stayed with us and instantly got pulled in our scene. Um, not not the Sonic Garden dead scene, but just my hang, right. you know. So, um, so and he's was not a deadhead. He still isn't. He doesn't really like the Grateful Dead. <laughs> um, but so Al was the only one that uh, was into that stuff at the time. But think- they they we all knew each other from from the scene and Topper. Who, who used to be most manager and I lived together. So gotcha. Yeah. It was pretty, pretty incestual. So with Al, Al is the only true deadhead or dead fan in the band besides you, of course. Um, do you think, I mean, and from what I can gather, you guys have done like 15 studio albums from what I saw somewhere around there. Yeah. And then a bunch more, live, right. a bunch more yeah. live albums as well. But do you think, and, and the answer may be no from what you just told me with the background. You think the Grateful Dead has influenced the band's songwriting in any way? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, you know, more so from Al, but if you listen to Rob's song, you know, it's 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 all over in there, you know. And probably subconsciously in a lot of ways. As I said, because Rob's Rob's not a dead fan? No. So but, but you think it kind of by osmosis or somehow creeps into the songwriting. Yeah, I mean, he's a he's a big uh, little feet fan <laughs> like you know so lowell actually produced a, a a dead record you know and so there's right. like there's a whole you know there's infl- and everybody you know is a band fan and everybody likes uh bob dylan you know so it's like there's just influences that are undeniable a lot of cross-contamination you know? exactly exactly <laughs> so that is exactly true. and and if you listen to the live stuff our jams are very Grateful Dead like in their um uh in their uh what's the word? How you know, their form almost. Right. You know, how, how we get from yeah, how we get from song to song. And it's 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 not conscious. It's definitely not conscious, but it's just kind of a byproduct of of what we're trying to do. Right. 
Right. Um, you mentioned Jim a few minutes ago. Jim plays percussion. You play drum set. Yep. And the Grateful Dead is drum set, drum set. And Mo, it's drum set, percussion. Right. How do you approach that? And you already answered, Jim's not a big Dead fan. Right. So I don't know. For you anyway, does the double drumming of the Dead have any influence on your mindset? And also, is it different when you're double drumming with a drummer or a percussionist? Um, yes. <laughs> there you go, folks. Thank you, Vinny. We'll talk to you later. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh, all of the above. Like, you know, like there's there's definitely a way to play double drums that is different than playing with a percussionist, especially if you have studied how to play double drums. And by studied, I mean, listen to the Grateful Dead and the Allmer Brothers. Right. Um, you know, like listening to as much Grateful Dead and playing as much as I have with another drummer, like you have, you know how to play with another drummer. Right. Period. That's different than playing with a percussion player, but only in, you know, how you play your notes or, you know, where you play stuff. You're still staying out of the way of the other guy. Right. You know, so like, and I used to play in a, a group called the Outer Circle Orchestra, which was a world beat band. We played, you know, everything from salsa and merengue to uh, some of the, you know, a bunch of the six, eight uh, African stuff. And um, so you learn how to stay out of the way and play, with percussionists, we had three percussionists. You learn exactly what to, you know. So I kind of mixed the two, playing like the Grateful Dead, but playing more in a what would be like an Afro-Cuban sort of styled band when I do the most stuff, because it's different. You know, you're you become a percussion player and not just a drummer in that because you you might be playing the shaker part on your hi hat and just playing four on the floor, which right. I do a lot in mo. You know, so it's like, you know, you become you become, um, you know, part of the percussion ensemble and not necessarily a drummer. Right. So, which kind of, you know, is, is Mickey and Billy in a lot of ways. They're not really playing your, you know, what you would consider a normal style of <laughs> no. drumming. I mean, it's like, Definitely it's just not. a big freight train going down the freaking... <laughs> On on a good yeah. night, on a good night, it's a freight train. And on a bad night, the guy in the New York Times called it a sneakers in a dryer. <laughs> yeah exactly and there's both you know there is definitely both. both it, it so. happens with me and dino i mean there's nights that will come off and it's just not good yeah yeah or there's nights will come off after the drums section and go that was awesome or yeah nights will come off apologizing to each other for screwing it up you know just, yeah that's, or stepping on each other in yeah, some way that just, you didn't mean to yeah it's just part of the improv thing you know when it, yeah when nothing's planned but right. like you said if you've studied it it works and i, I think back to I'm pretty sure it was in the State Theater in Falls Church when you came out and played with us one night. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And you and I had never double drummed together before. Right. But we sat down and had no problem right from the beginning. Mm -hmm. I think right from this, yeah. Tennessee Jed, maybe? I can't remember for sure. I think we did that. And then I, I came back on for one more Saturday night at the end. I remember that. Right. And, you know, so. but nobody had to worry because we've all done no. it before. Yeah. Right. Um, sometimes Jim, though... He plays a lot of mallets with you guys, right? He plays a lot of vibes and marimba. More and more, yeah. As as the years have gone on, he's gone more to that, so, which then puts me in a, you know, that's a melody instrument to me. So it's more like playing piano. So then I can play more like a drummer in those situations. Right. And not like, I mean, more like a, a one drum, you know, like, right. like I'm the only drummer. And then it helps me because he and I have played so long together 
that I can do his runs with him. He's playing on melody now and I'm on drums and we can match up and, you know, back, you know, I, I can back him up very well when he's on those instruments. Right. So. Right. That's awesome. You know, you, that's exactly what I was thinking when you, when I asked you about it. Yeah. Um, Let's geek out for a minute, man. Let's talk about equipment. <laughs> if oh, yeah. we bore you out there, folks, sorry. Too um, freaking bad. That's right. You know, being such a fan of the dead and the, and the drummers, was there any point? I mean, I know the answer for me is a resounding yes. Were there equipment influenced how you were going to set up or how you were going to play or how you tuned them or your cymbal choices? Well... Not the cymbals so much, but I played Yamaha drums for years. Yeah. <laughs> because they, you know, like, uh, I think Billy got his, that black Yamaha in what, 87. Mm-hmm. And Mickey was playing the Remo. And then right. they both, by 88, I think they were both on Yamaha. And that's, I got a Yamaha. It was red. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> like a dark red. And, uh, you know, and I played those. I played Yamahas until. I went to Mapex in like 2012 or 13 or something. Those are great drums. So I have a, a Mapex kit at home. My practice kit is a little Mapex kit that I love. Yeah. And so black cat. And I went to. Gun. I mean, I I switched over because um, the Yamaha stuff was getting it was expensive. Not that I you buy drums that often, but I was looking to to upgrade, and I just it was like whoa. And I was a endorsee, so I, you know, I was paying half of what retail was and they're still expensive you know or even more and i was like wow and i had a friend that had uh recently gone to mapex and uh i mean uh working there so i knew i had people that i you know like um having personal um connections to a particular company is important to me like just you know not being a number or just an endorsee like actually knowing people that I can work with and for sure them being friends and not just, you know, a business associate is, was important. So, and he was into it, you know, he said, these drums are amazing. So I, uh, I went over and the drums are amazing. You know, they're, they're very modern sounding, which is, you know, good for modern music. Right. Um, yet some of their, I mean, the armory kits, they, they're, they're the midline ones. Right. Freaking are vintage sounding and they sound great. And they're cheap. I will say this though, and, and like I've, I've got that kit here, and I've got a pearl kit here at home, and my drums on the road are GMS. But oh yeah, right, Yamaha hardware man for all of it. Oh yeah, I think well I have Mapex for my stuff on the road, um, but I my my uh, my home kit, which is a Mapex that I use a lot because I do a lot of side work, is all Yamaha stuff. It's the most versatile hardware in the world. I yeah, think it I, fits. I love it. It fits the best. I mean, yeah. it's the strongest. It doesn't break. Was there so. anything like, you know, you, Billy was an influence, and especially 80s Billy and 90s Billy, his drums are just dead as hell. You know, they got yeah. all that tape on them. Yeah. Did you go for a dead sound because of him or anything like that, or you let him sing? Uh, early on, not with Mo, no. I'm, I'm wide open, although right. I'm starting to starting to focus them a little more but i've been wide open with mo for years but now i listen to some of the tapes and i'm like i wish i could wish more was coming through the pa and right. i think it's because they're so open that they take a little less yeah in the pa yeah, you know might, so might even gate them who knows yeah so now i'm now i'm starting to put a little tape moon gel on the on the bigger yeah you know on the on the floor times but still trying to keep them somewhat open right so well, one of the big things, and I'm going to talk about myself for a minute, but 
one of the big things drumming wise that really in, really influenced me, and you'll love it too, being an '80s guy, was for me one of the things I love is when Mickey moved that big tom, which should have been like his last rack tom or his first floor tom, right? And he put over it over the, yeah. in the number one spot where the smallest yeah. one would be, and would like double the snare drum. Yeah. On, on two and four with the tom sound i yep. just that's one of my favorites because that there's the freight train definition yeah. right there you well know? so when i play uh single <laughs> when i play as a single drummer with a grateful dead band yeah i play on all those songs that you hear that which is a lot of them mm-hmm. i play my floor time and my snare drum together yeah almost everything i just it's boom. i just boom. oh it's the on best. everything you know I and I, I mean that makes total sense because when you watch him play and then playing with two drummers and playing dead stuff when you go to that part when you you know depending on what the other drummer's playing if you go to the tom parts it totally makes sense on on sticking and how yeah. he plays and what it sounds like and how melodic it becomes because the reality is that mickey hart is actually approaching the drum set more like a percussion rig uh-huh. You know, so he's almost playing like it's, you know, like he's playing a conga rig or, you know, in his, you know, some sort of, he's always been a world music guy. So some sort of bastardized version of, of all, you know, all forms of percussion from all over the world. Yeah. So, and that's kind of how I think he approaches it and how he sets, why he sets it up the way he does, why he plays the way he does. It's much easier to have it over there for sure. Cause yeah, you know, it's, it's hard to cross your body. Yeah. Or you have to move your right hand from the hi-hat to the floor tom or cross your left hand across right. your body to get to the floor tom. So right. it, it makes a lot of sense. Right. And, and it's a whole lot of fun to play that way. Another thing I loved was later on he got the talking drum that was on a pedal. Oh, yeah. So you didn't have you could you play it with two hands and use your foot to change the change the tone of it. Oh, oh, is that why it's like that's for for especially for the drum solo stuff? Or yeah. You, yeah. Yeah. And that one was like even in the nineties he had it on like where the last rack tom would be. Oh right, right. So then he could play with two drum or two hands in that yep. one. And, and uh, yeah, you know, without having to like s- squeeze it between his legs, like during the drum solos, him and right. Billy might put it between their legs, right, right, and squeeze it that way, which is a whole lot of work, right. It's so, right. like the thigh master for drummers, <laughs> right, <laughs> right. And then, so back to gear for cymbals. I recently, right before COVID, <laughs> changed to. Zildjian, I was a Peisty guy for my whole professional career. Really? Yeah. And then, uh, you know, they they just, I would listen to back to stuff and they occupied so much space, the, the Peisties in the mix, because they're, they're, they're loud. They take up a lot of space. And yeah. I switched over to K's. Uh, I have all K's now and, you know, they're quieter and everything uh, your crashes are K's too. Yeah. Everything I got is K. So, and they're, uh, they take up, they occupy less soundscape on stage. Um, and there's a lot of tones, like, you know, the Peisty stuff is consistent as it is and how good it sounds. Like if you break a cymbal, you just can order another one. It's going to sound exactly the same. Right. Um, there's a sound across the Peisties, which is kind of consistent as well with the Zildjian's like you, it's all over the place. You know, everything sounds different. Right. I've been a Zildjian guy since day one. Never played anything, but yeah, I was a big Bonham fan. So you know, and the Peisty, the Peisty crashes in particular always sounded best to me. So I don't know why I got into. I mean, just when I bought my first kit, my my big Neil Pert, lots of concert toms kit in 1981. <laughs> you, you know the kit. You had it. Oh yeah. Uh, um, <laughs> it, uh, 
I, I, I bought it with Zildjian symbols and just became yeah. a fan. You know, in fact, one of the ride symbols I use on the road, my main ride symbol on the road, is a 20-inch medium that I bought with my very first drum kit in 1981. That's awesome. It's probably been hit a billion times, you know? Yeah. It's got, yeah. That, it's got a sweet spot in it. I always have it tilted where I got that sweet spot, and there's a sweet yeah. spot on the bell that I'm always going to be on. That's awesome. And uh, I use A's mostly. I have a couple of K crashes, and then- mm-hmm. Um, some KZ, the KZ hi-hat combination. Right. Yeah, which that's is, a very popular uh, situation, but it sounds so, it's so tight and quick. Yeah, and, nice. and that's like a big sound, you know, is, is the dead late 80s and 90s. Yeah. Yep. Um, and the hi-hats became a lot more prevalent in the mix. That way, that open hi-hat all the time. Yeah. That, that Mickey thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, yeah. and the ones, I, I have a set of those here at home that I use, and the ones I have on the road that we use were actually Mickey's. Oh, um, shit. And they have a date on them when they, they came into play on 7288, which is Oxford Plains, which is a great show. Oh, yeah. Um, I was I saw them right before that in Rochester uh, and in Buffalo. That's a good run of shows right there. Yeah. So those symbols came in then. You know, somebody wrote on the inside of the bell the date on them. And, and we got those and a bunch of other Mickey and Billy symbols. We bought them at an auction years ago. Um, nice. So those, I mean, that is the sound. I have the yep. sound for that stuff, yeah. man. Yeah. My main so. my main hats on the road for all the other shows we do are the also the, those in the ride symbol or the fourteen inch new beats that I got with my first drum kit in eighty one. Yep. yep. And they're green and they're beat to hell, <laughs> and, but they sound so good. Yeah, and don't ever clean them. Because hell no. Fuck them up. Yeah, people don't ever clean your symbols. Don't you, <laughs> you take all that dirt out of the grooves? You're taking yeah. away the character. Yeah, I I used to clean the Pisces because the Pisces are just a crisp. You know, shiny, yeah. and they sound that they're kind of made to sound, you know, clean. Um, but the I'll never touch that the case. When, Plus, they don't come clean anyway. Right? When <laughs> like I was, you put that shit on there, and it's like all the fingerprints are still there. That's, still there. that's when I was a kid. You know, in in high school, still I would clean these symbols, and with with that Zildjian symbol cleaner, that really yeah. creamy white stuff. Yeah. And all you would do is ruin a bunch of towels because yeah. it gets so dirty. Right. And then your sticks would get all black. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, what the fuck? This is not the right move. Let's just get yeah. dirty. Yeah. Man, I cannot thank you enough for being here. But before I let you go, we're just going to, if you don't mind, we're going to do a quick lightning round. Don't think, just answer. Yeah. Can you handle that? I can handle it. All right, here we go. First show. Uh, SPAC 85. You mean dead show, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Favorite show? Uh, SPAC 85. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, studio recordings or live recordings? Um, studio. All right, man. I like it. Favorite dead album then. We'll move to that. Uh, Terrapin or Shakedown. Favorite non-dead album. Fuck, dude. I know. (laughs) This one I love to put everybody on the spot with this one. I can't name one. I got five. Name two of them. Uh, Steely Dan... Uh, Royal Scam, um, Paul Simon, Rhythm of the Saints. There, old man. The Paul Simon concert in Central Park from 91, right after that one came out, Yeah, is my Desert Island album. That band is freaking oh my God. killer. Five percussionists and mm-hmm. and the, uh, the the Brazilian percussion ensemble for the beginning. Yeah. And Steve Gadd. 
Yeah. And I'm on Sabaleco on bass. It's just, oh my God. It just, and Richard T on keyboard. It never ends, yeah. man. It's just yeah, yeah, so I know. good. I know. <laughs> uh, that record, that record's a fucking amazing. Oh, it's so good. And I'm, I know we've gone off the lightning round, but here in, <laughs> here in town, every once in a while, well, pre COVID anyway, I play with this group and we'll go out and we'll do all those songs. We'll play the Paul Simon stuff with the full horn section and two percussionists. And mm-hmm. um, oh my God, is it fun? Right. Oh, but if we get into the Bob Marley thing, then all his live stuff. There you that go. band again, the Whalers is just fucking ridiculous yeah. live band. Favorite color, blue. Blue. First job. First job, I was a landscaper. Well, delivering papers. I was a paper boy, but uh, then I landscape. Not a real job, right? Just no, job. Paper boy. Yeah. That would work. That's the first okay. time you yeah. got paid to do something, right? Twelve years old. Yeah. Favorite venue to play. Another one that's just. Nearly impossible to answer. Um, the Tabernacle. We were supposed to play there for the first time back in April. Mm, yeah. I mean, vibe-wise, it's just freaking amazing. But, you know, when you play Radio City, play SPAC, you play uh, Red Rock, like, it's impossible. But yeah. consistently, that place you go in. Or, or you know what the other one is? Roseland Ballroom, which doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, we played there I, I once. Should, yeah, I probably should have said that over the tab, but we haven't played there in a long time because it hasn't been a venue. So I'm actually the looking at a picture like, on the wall right now of us at the Roseland that was on the cover of Polestar. Yeah, is that not one of the freaking oh, it was awesome. most energized, amazing rooms ever? Yeah, and that was like the biggest crowd we ever had in New York City, at least at that point. Yeah, 4,000 people. Yeah, it was nuts, or 3,800, whatever it is. Well, I was really excited to play the Tabernacle in, in March. We were finally going to get there in April. It was Master's Week. I know it was going to be in April. Oh, so. man. And uh, and I was supposed to go to the Masters, so oh, man. fuck COVID. <laughs> <laughs> did you just watch it? Yeah, I did this weekend. It was great. Yeah, DJ just crushed. He, he was so consistent. Oh, uh, best city for a day off? <sighs> New York. New York. First car. Uh, was a Oldsmobile, uh, what was it called? Four-door? Uh, yeah, it was, uh, uh, my mom gave it to, uh, it was, the, uh, the 98? No, it was a smaller one. It was the, uh, uh, oh wait, it was a, was it an Oldsmobile or a Pontiac? It was a Pontiac, uh, yeah, it was that Oldsmobile, the, <laughs> the mid-size one. <laughs> was Something by GM. <laughs> hey, Deb. What was what was that car my mom gave me the purple one my first car what was it called Oh no was it Was it a 6000 Maybe it was a Pontiac 6000 Are you getting help from your parents on this right now My wife Oh that's too funny <laughs> That's too funny Uh current car uh BMW 328iX What book are you reading right now Uh I'm not <laughs> you're not the first person who has said that that's, that's all right i might have to take reading a book you know this is a musician's thing i might have to scratch that question from the lightning round because i've gotten well, a lot of i'm not reading a book <laughs> i could uh the, the the last book i read was the van halen uh thing by uh the tour manager yeah it stopped and he, oh that was a fucking killer book learned a lot about van halen in that book first uh no magazine you have any magazine subscriptions uh not currently First, oh, I do relics. I mean, that, that's just a, we got like as as part of the band. I think right. we got like a whatever uh, prescription forever. Man, first of all, I love having a drummer on. It's great to get to talk drums. No doubt, I could stay on for another two hours talking. Believe me. So. Hell, man! I remember one night we just <laughs> we sat in the in that place in Amsterdam up above oh, yeah. that party that that's, yeah. that grilled cheese party after the show, talking about oh, snare yeah. drums for an hour. 
Oh, I know. Up in uh, across the street from yeah. the milk bag there. Up in that the was a good party. It was. Sexy That's grilled good. cheese party. Just <laughs> <laughs> but, and we talked about snare drums all night. So I love talking drums, and I really, really appreciate you taking the time to spend it with me today and share some of your insight. I appreciate you having me. And like I said, I can do it for a long time. So if you ever need another guest, I'll do it again. We'll I talk would, yeah, we, different stuff. For <laughs> sure, man. We, we could get into some of the other drum paths we've gotten on that have led us to where we are today. So. I am all over that, pal. So, All cool. right, buddy. Stay safe. Stay well. And uh, good luck with everything. Thanks, brother. Thank you, bud. Yeah, talk to you later. That's Vinny Amico from Mo. Cheers. That was a lot of fun. I hope you all enjoyed that. Well, that brings us to the end of our episode. I would like to thank Vinny Amico and Mark Munzer for taking the time to be here. And I'd also like to thank my sponsors, Sarno Music Solutions and Blue Jade Audio, The Clean Store, and The Authenticity Academy for all of their support. The opening and segue music you're hearing are remixes of portions of DSO drum segments that are produced by my drumming partner Dino English. He's doing some pretty cool stuff with the remixes and I think he's going to be releasing an album of it very soon. We'll make sure to let you all know about it. The Music Plays the Band is produced by myself and the production and songwriting team Brothers Lazaroff here in St. Louis, Missouri. You can find out more about them at www.brotherslazaroff.com. I'd like to make one last reminder to head over to www.patreon.com forward slash the music plays and become a subscriber to the music plays the band podcast. We have a few different subscription levels and a lot of fun things going on as companion content to each episode. I will be back again in two weeks with episode number five featuring Ben Kaufman of the Yonder Mountain String Band. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and please, please stay vigilant. We need to get live music back out there as quickly as possible, and we need everyone's help in making that happen. Thanks for being here. People joining hand in hand While the music plays the band Louisville setting us on fire Crazy who's to go in midnight What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship. The studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, 
the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.